Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. We come today to the final chapter in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 13. I want to begin by reading the first six verses today. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have, for he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. I wonder if you've ever heard the word paronesis. It's a new word probably to many of us. Paronesis was an ancient rhetorical device in which a writer or speaker gave a series of moral exhortations that were loosely fitted together after his principal argument had been developed. And may I say this is another argument for a Pauline authorship of Hebrews because this 13th chapter is a typical paronesis, that is, a series of terse imperatives that are loosely fitted together as a sort of uh, addendum, if you please, and we see that that's a characteristic of many of Paul's letters. For instance, in Romans chapter 12, you find a series of moral exhortations and you say they don't seem to really go together. They seem to be disconnected, not necessarily developing a main thought. And you see the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5. You're probably familiar with that passage where he says, rejoice evermore in everything give thanks. He says, uh, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. He says, you know, uh, abstain from the very appearance of evil. Just a series of what we would call proverbs or moral platitudes that are loosely fitted together. Again, it may be an evidence that Paul was an old Baptist preacher <laughs> because a lot of primitive Baptist preachers will spend the bulk of the sermon, you know, developing one point, and then they may have two or three more points, and they'll just hit them real quickly right at the end. And we can think of saying goodbye to somebody, how that we want to give them a series of, you know, little terse exhortations like, be careful, watch the other guy, let me know when you get to your destination, be sure and text or call that you made it safely, and you all take care. We're familiar with that idea. It's called paronesis. It's an ancient literary or rhetorical device. And that's what this passage appears to be to me. Let brotherly love continue. That's a terse imperative. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers. You say, well, how do these go together? Remember them that are in bonds, that is, those who are incarcerated. Talks about marriage, which is honorable in everything. The marriage bed is undefiled. He says that we're to be content, not covetous. And you see, how do these things go together? Well, I believe that these imperatives, which appear to be loosely fitted together, 
and disconnected are tied together by the 14th verse. Hebrews 13, 14, and this is our text for the morning sermon. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one that is to come. What a great verse this is. And how important it is that you and I remember this verse. In this world, my beloved, nothing stays the same. Nothing is permanent. Is that true? Here, in this world, we have no continuing city. Everything changes. The face of a congregation changes from one year to the next. Have you noticed that? People who were here last year may not be here now because of one reason or another. Our communities change. New developments go up and existing architecture is torn down and new programs are implemented in the school systems and classes come and go. You know, one class that seems like they started yesterday now are graduating and their kids or the kids of the class of a couple of generations ago were starting school and everything is constantly in a state of flux for here we have no continuing city and how important it is that you remember that my beloved in this world nothing is permanent but we seek one that is to come the christian is somebody who looks for a permanent abiding place later down the road not in this world but we're looking for a city which hath foundations, that is, it's permanent, in heaven someday. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one that is to come. And I suggest that this verse emphasizes the importance of living like a pilgrim. I want you to remember, says Paul, the pilgrim character of the Christian life. That your life here is brief and uncertain and changing, but yet we're on our way to a permanent home. And we're just on pilgrimage while we're in this world. Here, we have no continuing city. Now, the pilgrim metaphor is an image that was popularized by John Bunyan in his literary classic, Pilgrim's Progress. You may know that John Bunyan was a Baptist preacher who was imprisoned because it was not lawful for anyone but Anglicans or the established church to preach. And so Bunyan preached anyway, and he was put in prison. While he was in prison, he wrote this classic book called The Pilgrim's Progress. And the pilgrim was named Christian. He emphasizes this thought of pilgrim, that is, someone who's on a journey. This world is not his home. He's away from home, and he's headed for home. That's what a pilgrim is. And probably in the only hymn poem that John Bunyan ever wrote, it came from part two of Pilgrim's Progress, in 1684, he wrote these words, and I want you to listen to this. He who would valiant be against all disaster, let him in constancy follow the master, for there's no discouragement shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories do but themselves confound, his strength the more is. That is, people may try to discourage you, but yet the Christian, the pilgrim, is somebody who says, I keep going following Christ. No foes shall stay his might. Though he with giants fight, he will make good his right to be a pilgrim. Since, Lord, thou dost defend us with thy spirit, we know we at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies flee away. I'll fear not what men say. I'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. The pilgrim's 
progress. You say, Brother Mike, the real story of Christian discipleship seems to be the pilgrim's regress. I mean, we seem to fall backward, you know, we seem to not make a lot of headway. But I'll tell you, every day in the life of Christian discipleship is one day closer to home. And how important it is that you and I learn to sing with the hymn writer, I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home. Earth is a desert drear. Heaven is my home. Have you learned that, that this life is fleeting, it's brief? I mean, today you're a little boy and tomorrow you're an old man wobbling through the world on a cane. Today you're a little girl rocking her baby, playing make-believe, and tomorrow you're an old woman trying to remember the names of your grandchildren. And it happens just like that. And my beloved, this world was never intended to be permanent. For here, we have no continuing city. But we're on our way home, right? We're like the children of Israel in the wilderness who lived in tents. You know, that's a theme that was already developed in Hebrews chapter 11 when he says in the 13th verse, these all died in faith, talking about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. That is, they never realized the ultimate things that you and I understand today. They saw them afar off and were persuaded of them, though they never really embraced the fulfillment of the things that God had promised, yet they were convicted that these things were true. They were persuaded of them, and they embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. That is, they were waiting for the full realization of God's promises in heaven in that continuing city. For they that say such things, he says, declare plainly that they seek a country. Pilgrims are people who are glad to admit, as the old spiritual says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And you know, that's very uncommon, that mindset. The pilgrim perspective is uncommon today. Because what do we want to do? We want to put our roots down pretty deeply, right? And then rail against the heavens if anything changes. <laughs> You know, we want everything to be permanent. We want a permanent abiding place. We want permanent good health. We want people to stay around us and never to pass on. And we anything that happens to change our perfect little setting, we get upset about it. But my beloved, we should not expect things to stay the same in this world. Okay, let's just try to be healthy-minded and realistic. Biblically speaking, this morning here, we have no continuing city but we're seeking one that is to come. And Jacob, when Pharaoh asked him in Genesis 47, verse 9, how old are you? Do you remember Jacob's answer? Few and evil have been the days of the years of my pilgrimage, and I have not attained to the years of my fathers in their pilgrimages. Notice how he characterizes his life. It's a pilgrimage. My beloved, Learn to think of your life right now as a pilgrimage. This world was never intended to be permanent. Your current set of circumstances will change. Some for the better and a lot of times for the worse, it seems. But it shouldn't send us into a panic because here we have no continuing city, but we're seeking one that is to come. This thought, it seems to me, the thought of the pilgrim character of the Christian life is the driving motivation for Paul's paranesis here in Hebrews 13, that is, everything that he says here could be summarized in this thought that we are pilgrims and strangers here. 
For instance, let's get specific. A pilgrim perspective is our motivation to live a life of love, verses 1 to 3. Let brotherly love continue. Notice the first theme he mentions here in this final chapter of the book as he gives them some parting advice, you know, terse imperatives. The first thing he says is let brotherly love continue. Don't be forgetful to entertain strangers and remember the sufferers who are in prison or suffering adversity. I suggest, my friends, that the apostle is telling us that a pilgrim perspective here should be our motivation to live a life of love, a life of love. Now, is there much love in this world in which we live? There's a lot of animosity, a good bit of conflict, a lot of opposition and vitriol. You can see it on social media. You see it on Twitter and uh, Facebook and TikTok. Now, they're trying to control it and keep people, you know, they want everybody to be nice. Everybody play nicely. But the fact is, there is a lot of tension in the world in which we live. And my beloved, as pilgrims, love in the church should be the priority. There's tension out there. There shouldn't be tension in here. Let brotherly love continue. Now, the fact he says let it continue implies that we might do something to hinder it, right? If we must let it continue, that means that we could hinder it from continuing by the way that we act. So he says, brethren, make love a priority because you're not here for long. And therefore, love is of the essence in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I suggest verse 1 tells us to love the saints. Verse 2 tells us to love the strangers. Verse 3 tells us to love sufferers. Love to the saints with whom we live and worship, my beloved, should be a priority because of the pilgrim character of our lives. Now the word brotherly love in this verse, you may know, comes from the Greek word Philadelphia. Philadelphia is brotherly love. That is the kind of love that friends or brothers would have. It's a tie that binds our hearts together. John Fawcett wrote the hymn we sing sometimes, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. You know, don't you, that the church is not supposed to be just another club in which we pay our dues and have our little membership cards and sort of a professional kind of fraternity. My beloved, the church is a family affair, right? We call each other brother and sister because we have the same heavenly father who has brought us into relationship with him and with each other by his marvelous grace. And the church is a group of people who see each other not just as business contacts on our Rolodex, but the church is a very intimate family kind of connection. Let brotherly love continue. There's a tie that binds our hearts together. There's a bond. It's not a loose kind of affinity, but it is an intimate bond of filial love. Let brotherly love continue. My beloved, may I say that one of the greatest blessings to have in this cold, heartless world is a group of people who really love you. And that's what the church is. People who care about you enough to check on you. People who want to help bear your burdens. People who are willing to get into the ditch with you and get their hands dirty in order to ease your burdens and help you live the Christian life. 
people who actually pray for you. They think about you more than just the day of meeting. They are concerned about you. Now, none of us are perfect at this. We've been taught by God to love one another, says 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. But Paul says, brethren, I can't teach you to love each other, but once God has taught you that, I can't exhort you and admonish you to abound in it more and more. Let it continue. Don't do anything to hinder brotherly love because it's a rare commodity. This bond of friendship and brotherhood between fellow believers acts to fortify us against despair in a world that opposes us and that hates the cause of Christ. Let brotherly love continue. Because we're pilgrims, my beloved, make love among the saints a priority. And not only the saints, but verse 2 says, the strangers. Love the strangers. He says, be not forgetful. Or remember, it would put it positively, to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, no doubt, the writer is thinking of the familiar story in Genesis 18, when Abraham and Sarah were visited one day by three strangers who turned out to be angels. And these three strangers came to Abraham and he told Sarah to go fetch a kid of the goats and to slay it and to prepare a meal for these three strangers, and as he sat in his tent door in the plains of Mamre during the heat of the day, these three strangers approached Abraham, received them with hospitality, he fed them, he conversed with them, one of them stayed back with him, and the other two went on to Sodom and rescued Lot and his family from the judgment that was coming. That's Genesis chapter 18. And when he says, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, people that you've never met before, you see, not only should our love be toward those with whom we live and worship week in and week out, the saints, the brotherhood, but we should love strangers that we encounter from time to time along life's pathway, fellow Christians that we've never met before, and show them hospitality. That is, we should show compassion to fellow believers, albeit unknown to us, with whom we come into contact along life's journey. Have you ever noticed how many times the New Testament emphasizes the importance of hospitality? It's a Christian virtue that could probably be listed on the you know, endangered species list. Hospitality. As our world becomes increasingly privatized and everybody is focused on their own you know, little fig tree, it's easy to just be ingrown and not to address our neighbors and friends and people around us. One of the benefits of a storm like this is it gives us an opportunity to talk to our neighbors and to say, listen, you need some help. So thankful yesterday that uh, we were able to work with a couple of neighbors. One of the trees on our property that we've been working on fell over and knocked out the power line. I said, how do you like your new neighbors? I mean, they brought conflict into your life, but one of them got out there and helped us, you know, and they hooked a, you know, a strap to it and they helped pull it out of the ditch and we cut it up with the chainsaw and we got it out of the way hoping to get power restored soon and it was just rewarding to try to you know to work with a neighbor and to be able to interact and to try to ease their burdens and to try to help them while they helped me he says brethren reach out don't be ingrown don't keep your doors shut and locked and your windows latched down tightly so that nobody can get in. Use hospitality. Be not forgetful. Entertain strangers because we're just here for a little while. This world is not our home. And while you're here, my friends, do what you can and use what you have to try to help others 
That's the Christian mindset. It's the diametric opposite of the secular mindset in this world. One of the verses that teaches this is 1 Peter 4, 9. Use hospitality without grudging, says Peter in a similar paranesis, a similar passage in which he gives us a series of admonitions. And I would say people are naturally hesitant, and I understand this, to allow others entrance into their most private and personal dimension of life. But remember that verse, freely you have received, therefore freely give. And perhaps like Abram and Sarah of old, you and I will entertain an angel. And the point that he makes in this passage is that by loving strangers, in opening your heart and home to strangers, you may indeed find that you've received more than you've given in that situation. You say, well, these are, these are my groceries. This is my house. But my friends, if you share with others, other believers, and may I say we have opportunity to do that sometimes when we have a meeting here and people come from a good distance away to visit with us, worship with us, to be able to take somebody home with you, you say, well, that's quite a sacrifice. I mean, I have to work hard. It is a sacrifice. It is hard. You have to prepare the house and work hard. You know, it's about twice a year that we get our house deep cleaned, <laughs> you know, and everything put away ready for company to come. And that's a good opportunity to make sure you get things put away. But you say, Brother Mike, it's just too much of a sacrifice. I'm telling you, you may receive more than you give. You may entertain angels unawares. You will, I believe, have a blessing that will have long-lasting implications in your life. I have memories from childhood of entertaining old Baptists and God's people in our home, many of whom I had never seen before and some of whom I haven't seen since, yet we enjoyed the visitation, enjoyed the opportunity to interact with them. So while you're on pilgrimage, my friends, love the saints and love the strangers. Thirdly, love the sufferers. Verse 3. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, that is, the prisoners, and them which suffer adversity, that is, those who are suffering either incarceration or hardship, as being yourselves also in the body, that is, there's a connection, you're all in the body of Christ, there are many members in one body, and he says, though they're out of sight, don't let them be out of mind. You see, love the saints with whom you live and worship. Love the strangers that you encounter from time to time along the pilgrim pathway of life. And love the sufferers that are beyond your immediate circumstances and easy to forget about because you don't see them like the shut-ins. Now, we mentioned this morning one of our members who is in a nursing home. And I have to tell you, if we're not careful, we can forget about people like that because they're well cared for, Right. They're well taken care of, and you say, well, I haven't thought about this person for a long time because I don't see them on a regular basis. What if somebody was in jail, in prison for the gospel? That was a common thing in those days, and no doubt some of these Hebrews had been incarcerated, put in jail because they had violated the law. The law said you can't meet to worship, and they had met to worship anyway. You can't preach in the name of Jesus, but they had done so anyway out of a sense of conscience toward God. You know, man really has no right to require you to offend your conscience. We believe in the freedom of conscience, and I'm thankful that we've lived in a country for these 200, almost 40 years, 240 years. I'm thankful that we've lived in a country that has allowed us freedom of conscience. 
the freedom to worship according to our convictions without being forced to go against conscience. But you know, there may come a day when the Caesar says, if you don't bow down and worship and swear by the genius of the Caesar, then you'll be put in jail. That happened to Daniel. If you don't bow down and worship at the sound of the trumpet and the sackbut and the psaltery, or the three Hebrews, remember? If you don't fall down as soon as you hear music and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up, then you'll be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. It happened to them. It happened to Daniel. He was cast into the den of lions because he refused to stop praying. And they said, you can't pray to any god but the king. They were practicing emperor worship. Daniel opened his window as at other times, and three times a day he knelt down and prayed to God. Well, it landed him in jail. Paul was put in prison, not for doing anything wrong, but for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in a culture that had outlawed religious freedom. And my friends, it could happen to you or me. And when it happens, when you know people that are suffering for the gospel's sake or suffering some other kind of adversity or hardship, as the verse says, don't forget them, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. That is, we have a bond together, a tie that binds us together. If we're going to live lives of love, the best incentive for doing so is to remember our, the pilgrim character of our lives. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Not only should love be a priority, a pilgrim perspective is our motivation to live a life of purity, says verse 4. Marriage is honorable in all. You say, Brother Mike, I don't understand how this verse on moral purity on the undefiled marriage bed fits in with this other exhortation about brotherly love and visiting the prisoners and entertaining, showing hospitality to strangers. How does all of this fit together? It is all the implications of living a pilgrim kind of lifestyle. If you live as a pilgrim, it will help you to remember that purity, moral purity, in a world of gross immorality should be a priority to us. Peter puts it like this, 1 Peter 2.11, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Listen to that. I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, as pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Now, the Greco-Roman culture in which these Hebrews lived or which was influencing their society it ruled the day. You know, Alexander the Great, and the Roman Empire had invaded and spread its influence, Hellenized even the Middle East, even the Holy Lands. And as the Greco-Roman culture prevailed, it was rampant. It was rife with immorality. And Christians should not imitate the world. Though the world has a sort of passe, cavalier attitude towards sexual mores, he says Christians should hold this high standard that marriage is the context for enjoying intimacy. And it, there's nothing wrong with it in that context of covenant commitment. But outside of that, it will incur the judgments of God. Purity should be a priority. Number three, a pilgrim perspective is not only our motivation for love and purity, but for contentment. Look at verses 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Now the word conversation means lifestyle. And he says, may your life not be controlled by material possessions. You know why that's true? Because material possessions don't last forever. Moth and rust corrupts them. 
You ever gone out to some item that you bought? I'll just say it like this. We, uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, it's probably when Florence, Hurricane Florence was headed our way, Lori and I bought a generator. But yesterday I had a friend whose power had gone out, well, because of my tree falling on the power lines, and uh, took, the, uh, took the generator over there and said, we'll fix you right up. You can plug your refrigerator, your freezer into it, you can charge your cell phone. You know, we'll get you something to tide you over until the power company, you know, finally gets out here to, to restore power. Went out there and set it up, filled it with fuel and started pulling and pulled until I got a cramp in my shoulder and arm because that thing wouldn't crank. Finally figured out that carburetor's probably gunked up, so went and got some carburetor cleaner, came and sprayed it in there, and we could get it to fire and to turn over, you know, and to crank for a second, but it wouldn't stay cranked. Finally decided we need to clean the carburetor with more than just that, you know, that starter fluid. And uh, so anyway, Sister Lori's got a new project. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm overseeing, I'm superintending that project while she, uh, because that's my spiritual gift, you know, supervision. Anyway, to make a long story short, you know, you say, I've got this new thing. It, it will rust before you know it, right? Moth and rust corrupts things. You put up a new structure if, you don't, if you're not careful. And even if you are careful sometimes, you know, it begins to decay. It's called entropy. The second law of thermodynamics, everything is wearing out. Everything gets old. It tends to disorder and to decay. It happens in our lives. Don't put your stock in things. Don't hold too tightly to the things of this world because they're not lasting. Let your lifestyle be without covetousness. Don't be a grabber and a keeper and a hoarder and a miser, he says, and be content. Here's the opposite of covetousness, contentment. With such things as you have, for God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you that you may boldly say the Lord is. Now, if you're going to live the pilgrim life, my beloved, the Christian life as a pilgrim, it's vitally important that you hold to this world with a loose grip. Let your lifestyle be without covetousness because things come and go. Now, we want to be good stewards of the things God has given us. We want to protect them. We want to try to keep them in repair and use them as long as we can. But the fact is, my beloved, if your joy and happiness is tied to the things of this world, you're going to eventually be very miserable. He says, learn contentment. Be content with such things as you have. A pilgrim mindset teaches us to hold this world with a loose grip. Matthew Henry, when he was 23 years old, wrote these words, wise words, to a friend about contentment. He said, we are in this world as in an inn, as in an inn. Now, he means a motel. You ever stayed in a motel? You don't live in a motel, do you? Not ordinarily. You just stay there for a night or two. He says, we're in this world like somebody staying in a motel. We're in this world as in an inn, and we must be gone shortly. Why should we then conform ourselves to this world or cumber ourselves with it? When you stay in a motel room... You say, I'm just going to be here one night or two nights. Do you think, well, I'm going to go down to Home Depot or Lowe's and let's redecorate this. Do you cumber yourself with it? Do you decide to repaint it and to put wallpaper up and to maybe 
you know, put in a new light fixture, a chandelier instead of the light that's... No, you don't cumber, you're not, you don't worry about it, do you? You're only there for a night or two. He said, we're in this world like somebody staying in a motel. Why then would we be so worried about the things, the trappings? Should we not sit loose to it as we do to an end? And what if we have but ill accommodations? What if the mattress is not as soft as you would like? Pick a better chain the next time, I guess. You know, I've made a few mistakes along the way. No amen, Sister Lori. Uh, I've made a few mistakes along the way. You know, the It'll Do Motel is probably not the best decision I've ever made. But he says, what if we have but ill accommodations? It is but an inn. It will be better at home. If our lodging here is hard and cold, it is no great matter. Our lodging in the Father's house will be soft and warm enough. That's 23-year-old Matthew Henry who wrote that to a friend. Was that good advice? Yes, indeed. You're in this world, my friends, like somebody staying in a motel. This is not a continuing city, but we're seeking one that is to come, and therefore learn to be content. The apostle said it like this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in verse 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to know who truly is wealthy in this world? The person who is content to be godly, and who's devoted to the Lord, and he's satisfied with the necessities of life. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's the really rich person. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we will carry nothing out. We came into this world naked. Naked shall we return thither, says Job. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. With God is your portion, dear friend, and the promise of his faithful providential care as we see in this text, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's his promise to you. With that in your mind, there's no cause for alarm. You can be content with your ill accommodations. And I want to say this, contentment is a learned trait. It's not something some people were born with and other people were left out. You say, well, it's just not my personality to be satisfied with things as they are. Now, obviously, there are some areas that we should, you know, we shouldn't settle for mistreatment. We shouldn't settle for our own progress in holiness. We should always be ambitious as far as being more Christ-like. And if you can change your situation, it's not wrong to. But in the final analysis, an attitude of contentment is a learned trait. Paul says it like this, Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. What I'm saying is you serve God where you are right now, not where you wish you were. Some of you here this morning say, one day my ship will come in. One day when the kids are grown, one day when I get that bonus, when I get that promotion at work, one day when we're able to move out of this trailer into a, you know, into a subdivision or whatever, then I think I can be happy. No, life is what happens to you while you're waiting for life to happen. Life's happening right now. This is it. You say, well, it's not perfect. Well, then if you can change it, change it. Do what you can to set the stage to try to make progress. But in the meantime, with food and raiment, having something to eat, a shelter over your head, be able to say, thank you, Lord, that things are as well with me as they are. That's a learned trait. It's a discipline, not a grace. 
Now think of Fanny Crosby, who was the subject of the hymn history insert that Brother Marshall gave out today, and a poem she wrote when she was eight years old. You know, Fanny Crosby was blind, blind from infancy. Her parents put a, some kind of plaster on her eyes because of some disease or infection she had. It was a home remedy and it had the opposite effect. Instead of healing her, it took her sight away and she was blind for the rest of her life. And at eight years old, she wrote this poem. Would you listen to it? She said, oh, what a happy child I am. <laughs> well, she's blind, eight years old. You say, what reason does she have to be happy? Well, listen, oh, what a happy child I am, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world, contented, there it is, I will be. How many things that I enjoy that other people don't. So to weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. <laughs> My beloved, that's not a natural characteristic. That's not a natural trait. That is something she developed. That's a tough-minded perspective that she developed, with God's help, no doubt, as she learned to be thankful for the things that God had blessed her with. You say, well, I want it all, Brother Mike. Well, good luck with that. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Having something to eat, having a reasonable degree of health, having people around you that you love, friends, family, loved ones, work associates, having transportation. You say, well, it's not, the, it's not that vehicle I've been wanting to purchase. Well, maybe you'll get it one day. There's nothing wrong with thinking about it, dreaming about it, laying up in store and planning for it. There's nothing wrong with that. But my friends, in the meantime, that old jalopy that gets you from point A to point B, say, thank you, Lord, that I have transportation because there's more to life than the trappings we're only here for a little while. We're just pilgrims and strangers. Here we have no continuing city, but we're seeking one that's to come. By the way, in heaven, there won't be people who drove old beat up Fords or Chevrolets, while other people who drove, you know, Rolls Royces, you know, they won't be in separate classes in heaven. We'll all be there by the blood of Christ, having fellowship with each other. And we won't be talking about the haves and the have-nots down here, so learn to be content. You see how a pilgrim perspective helps us learn to love how to practice and pursue moral purity, how to be content and satisfied. There's a hymn that by Joseph Gilmore in our hymnal, He Leadeth Me, that says this in the third verse, Lord, I would clasp thy hand in mine, nor ever murmur, nor repine. Content, whatever lot I see, since tis my God that leadeth me. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, wrote, Content, I'm content while beholding his face. My all to his pleasure resigned. No changes of season or place can make any change in my mind. That kind of contentment, my beloved, derives from understanding that the Lord is your portion. He said, I will never leave you. You can be content because God's promised to be with you through thick and thin, in sunshine and in shadow. And then, my friends, humility before the authority of God's word should be a priority. The pilgrim perspective should be your motivation in mind to live a life of humility and submission to the authority of God's word. You see it in verses 7 and 8. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. Now, by the way, three times in this chapter, he mentions those who have the rule over you. 
You see that phrase in verse 7? Remember them which have the rule over you, verse 7. Again in verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. And again in verse 24, salute all them that have the rule over you. That word does not mean authoritarian rule. It means leadership. Remember your leaders. Leadership. There's a difference in a dictator and a leader. And in the Bible... Leadership is leadership by example. It's servant leadership, not authoritarian leadership. You say, what kind of leaders is he talking about in this verse? Well, those who've spoken to you the word of God, says verse 7. He's talking about the ministers of the gospel who teach the word, who are your spiritual leaders. He says, I want you to remember them and submit yourselves. And it's not because your preachers are in a position of authority, but it's because the word of God that they teach and preach is the rule for our lives. We should all conform ourselves to this book, right? So if you can prove that it's biblical, that it's scriptural, then obviously we ought to follow it. So he says, since you're a pilgrim, be humble before the authority of God's word. Follow and submit to your Christian leaders, both those who are past, that's verse 7, remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken past tense to you the word of God, now, obviously, the first generation of teachers has passed on, and he wants these people to know it's not wrong to remember those preachers from yesteryear. Remember them that have the rule over you, who have spoken to you the word of God, whose faith follow, and that means imitate, imitate their life. Paul said, be followers of me. Now, is it right to follow a preacher only as he follows the Lord? Be followers of me as I also follow Jesus Christ. But if your teacher is following the Lord, you should imitate his example. Because ministry, gospel ministry in the New Testament is leadership by example. It's a microcosm of the Christian life. Paul told Timothy, be an example to the believers in faith, in purity, in charity, in word, in in doctrine. He says, in every respect, the way you talk, the way you think, the way your attitudes, the way you conduct yourself. He says, live in such a way that people not only will hear the truth that you preach, but they will see in you an example, an illustration of what it means to try to live the Christian life. You see, God has given a show and tell in the preacher, in the ministry. Tell is what I do each Sunday in the pulpit. Show is hopefully how I behave myself, conduct myself, show interest in others, try to put the Lord first. And in the ministry, God's people have a role model, or they should have, that they can try to imitate, be followers of them, follow their faith, he says, considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Though your first generation of leaders has passed on. Now, by the way, you all had preachers in the past that influenced you, right? Think of Elder Newell Helms. He had a great influence on many of our lives. Elder Larry Austin. Elder Larry's still living, but Brother Newell has gone home to be with the Lord. Some of you knew Elder C.M. Mills, Right? Many of you knew Elder Sonny Piles. Many of you knew uh, Elder C.E. Doherty, right? These people had an influence on us, right? Don't forget about them and try to live like they lived. Imitate their example. That's a wonderful word of advice. But he says, though these people are precious to you and they had an influence on you, they changed, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Christ they preached is the same. My beloved, God buries his workmen, but he carries on his work.
God buries his servants. How many people have we lost in this congregation? I say we've lost. Really, they're not lost. We know where they are, right? So they're not lost. But I mean, how many people used to sit on these pews that are not here anymore? And we think, oh, precious memories. I wish they were still here. But my beloved, even though they're gone, we can deal with it because here we have no continuing city. The Christ that loved them and died for them and that loves us and cares for us is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see how this thought of the pilgrim character of life is the key. It's the glue that pulls this whole chapter of what appear to be disconnected imperatives. Love one another, care for the strangers, use hospitality, visit the prisoners, keep yourself pure, be content with the things that you have, follow and obey those who are leading you by preaching the word of God. You see how all of this is tied together in this thought of learning to live like a pilgrim. And we'll stop there this morning, but come back, the Lord willing, to finish Hebrews next time. One more time. February 21st of 2021 was our, I think that was our first time to study this book. Here we are, almost at the end of 2022, but I mean, it's, it's all been God's Word, I trust, and it's been a, an intense look at the Word of God. We've come to the end of it. No hallelujahs, please. But we've come to the end of this wonderful, thrilling book, right? What a great lesson this is. Christ-centered, the sacrifice of Christ is the core, the center of our lives. What he's done for us is everything. And he comes to the end of it and he says, brethren, here's how it should all play out in your life. Remember, you're just here for a little while. While you're here, be as loving as you can. Be a blessing to others. Try to live a holy life. Be content with what God has blessed you with. Be humble before God's Word. Don't resist it and rebel against it and say, I'm not going to do it. I don't agree with it. He says, you submit yourselves to the Word of God. It has authority to tell me what to think and how to behave and how to live and you as well. He says, so follow that. Follow your leaders who are following Christ and do it all. He says, with this pilgrim mindset, it'll help you to bear the burdens and difficulties of the way. To deem it an honor to be treated like Jesus Christ and to wear the thorns of suffering like he did as a crown. Because here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come.